Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. An extraordinary suggestion by President Trump, who said on Twitter that he wants to push back Election Day. Later in the day, he said he really is opposed to mail-in ballots. I don't want to delay. I want to have the election. But I also don't want to have to wait for three months and then find out that the ballots are all missing and the election doesn't mean anything. That's what's going to happen, Steve. That's common sense. The U.S. tops 150,000 coronavirus deaths and millions lose extra federal unemployment benefits. But the Senate went home for the weekend without reaching a deal on a new aid package. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Democrats are asking for too much money. We think that's clearly far beyond what is necessary uh, to get us through this next period as we continue to wrestle with the coronavirus, which is simply not going away anytime soon. Friends, family, colleagues and former U.S. presidents gathered in Atlanta on Thursday to late arrest civil rights icon John Lewis. President Barack Obama eulogized him. When we do form a more perfect union, whether it's years from now or decades or even if it takes another two centuries, John Lewis will be a founding father of that fuller, fairer, better America. We have a sharp panel for this hour for our weekly news roundtable. Julie Pace, Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press is here. Hi, Julie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Betsy Woodruff-Swan, she's a national correspondent for Politico, covering federal law enforcement, including the Departments of Justice and Homeland Security. Welcome back to On Point, Betsy. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. And Hayes Brown joins us from New York. He is co-host and producer of the BuzzFeed and iHeart podcast News O'Clock. Hayes, great to have you back as well. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, I want to start with the emergency stimulus plan because 30 million Americans have lost their coronavirus unemployment benefits as of today. The Senate adjourned yesterday for the weekend without reaching an agreement on a new aid bill. Julie Pace, I'll start with you. Republicans and Democrats are still trillions of dollars apart here. Uh, So where did things stand? Well, right now we're just in a massive logjam on the Hill. There there are really few signs of where the two parties are in agreement. You have a huge difference over the top line amounts of money they're willing to spend. You have differences over what they're willing to spend money on right now. Uh, one area that both parties agree on is that some money does need to go to schools. But the fact that we are now approaching August with no sign of when legislation could be finalized means that even if that money is eventually allocated to schools, it will come too late for schools to be able to use it to start their school year. Many places are, are, are in that, that decision-making phase and implementation phase right now. So I think there's a lot of pressure on both parties to show that they are taking the pandemic and all of the uh, fallout from the pandemic seriously, uh, but very little sign that they are, are able to translate that right now into a bipartisan 
nonpartisan agreement. So, Hayes Brown, why are negotiations for this bill so different, so difficult this time around at a time when millions of Americans are struggling to pay the rent to put food on the table? I think because uh, there's less of the sticker sh- – people are still suffering from sticker shock from the first round of stimulus that went out. Uh, that was right at the start of the pandemic. No one really knew what was happening. It hadn't become as politicized. And so the idea that you could rush out this you know, multi-trillion dollar package uh, right away was necessary to stem the uh, tide of rampant unemployment uh, and greater and greater death from the coronavirus. Now that we've had a few months for it to settle in, for some reason, for a lot of people, it feels like less dire of an emergency. And a big part of that, which I think a lot of people on the Hill are not really connecting to, is because of that first uh, package of unemployment benefits and everything else to help stabilize the economy, help people stay on their feet throughout this crisis. Now, as it looks like we might need to have more lockdowns in certain places as the virus surges, these unemployment benefits are more important than ever. The big difference right now, though, is that Republicans want to winnow it down to about $200 extra per week from the 600 that it currently is versus Democrats who want it to stay at the same. Uh, Republicans in the Senate are also pushing for the states to take more control over it, potentially providing up to 70% of people's benefits from the job that they lost, while Democrats just want to renew the funding that they already approved back in Mm. March. And additionally, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell insists that any bill must include a five-year liability shield for businesses and health care providers. That's a non-starter for Democrats. So there are a lot of places uh, where they just don't see eye to eye. Here's Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer speaking on the Senate floor Wednesday about the stalling negotiations between Democrats, congressional Republicans and the White House. We want to work with our Republican colleagues and the White House on a bill that actually meets the needs of the American people in these unprecedented times. But it's going to take good faith and compromise. Good faith and compromise. Betsy Woodruff-Swan, what's the end game here? The end game is hard to see at this point. What we know is that we're entering one of the darkest chapters for the U.S. economy in many decades. And because there hasn't been movement on the Hill to bring relief to people and to families who are, you know, really close to living you know, right on the edge, there's going to be an immense amount of economic pain that opens up in the coming days. What that means for congressional action very much remains to be seen. I think one of the big questions is, does the the increase in just human suffering that's going to happen because of the expiration of some of this relief, will that result in more political pressure on members of Congress and members of the administration to reach some sort of compromise, to reach some sort of deal. But the fact that the pressure that that these negotiators faced over the last week or so wasn't sufficient to get them across the line would indicate uh, or or would, would perhaps indicate that there's not great, immense cause for optimism. Congress has essentially accepted that uh, that no deal is better than a compromise. And that means it's anyone's guess as to what the next step for the next round of COVID relief is going to look like and when it will come. Well, when you say the darkest chapter of the U.S. economy, that is certainly reflected in the new economic data uh, out this week that shows a U.S. economy buckling under the weight of this pandemic. The U.S. economy shrank nearly 10 percent in the second quarter. That's the largest quarterly decline since the government began publishing data 70 years ago. Julie Pace, 
um, you know, across the board, these these are sobering numbers and a sobering reflection of the pandemic's economic devastation, Julie. And also, I think, an indication that we are not uh, in the clear on this. You know, so much of the conversation that we heard from the White House a month or two ago was really focused on cheerleading the economy, really trying to encourage people to open up businesses, to go back to work, to go back to restaurants, to go back to spending money, to, to really try to fuel consumer confidence. And the, the, the top line from the White House was basically, we are out of the woods now. And I think the White House is having to grapple with that reality. You know, we are not going to be, you know, at the end of the year, back to where we were at the start of the year economically. And that requires the government to do different things. That requires the government to take different kinds of actions. And I think that you are dealing with, you know, the hopes of President Trump on the economy versus the reality of it right now. Uh, But, you know, to Betsy's point, I think that you do start to wonder when what's happening on the ground for millions of Americans does start to change actions, not only on on Capitol Hill, but also at the White House. Well, let's talk about that a minute. From the economic toll to the human uh, impact, death toll from the coronavirus hit 150,000 in the United States this week. That's by far the highest toll in the world. Here is White House Coronavirus Task Force member Dr. Deborah Burks encouraging the American public to wear masks. Here she is on Fox and Friends yesterday. We believe if the governors and mayors of every locality right now would mandate masks for their communities and every American would wear a mask and socially distance and not congregate in large settings where you can't socially distance or wear a mask, that we can really get control of this virus and drive down cases as Arizona has done. Uh, Hayes Brown, this week the president retweeted a video uh, that was later banned from social media for containing unsubstantiated medical claims by a doctor who said some pretty odd and and disturbing things about demons and alien DNA and such. I'm just curious, broadly speaking, is the administration rethinking any part of its strategy uh, on the pandemic moving forward? So that's an interesting question, because on the one hand, you have the administration, and on the other hand, you have the president, and they just do not mash up so much of the time as we've seen time and time again over the years. The administration, you have people like Dr. Burks, the vice president and others who say forcefully at this point, no, you need to wear a mask. If you are out in public, please socially distance still. We're trying to get the economy up and running again. And that doesn't work if you are continuing to spread the virus. But then on the other hand, you have the president who, as you said, retweeted this video that that uh, was a group of doctors standing on the steps of the Supreme Court saying that not only should uh, everyone be taking hydroxychloroquine, which is a anti-malarial and anti-inflammatory drug that the president has been pushing, but because of this miracle cure that nobody needs to wear masks. And so when you have him out there spreading misinformation while also sometimes saying when he's reading off of a prompter that you need to wear a mask, that's a very mis- that's a very mixed message. And that muddles it. That makes it so that it's easier for people who are out there in the U.S. to say, well, I mean, we don't need to do this, do we? We don't have to. I have rights. You can't make me wear a mask. And the fact that Dr. Burks is still calling on state and local officials to make this call, as opposed to the president calling up the governors and localities himself and saying, no, you need to make this happen, shows how this has not really reached the resolute desk. Mm. 
Uh, Betsy Woodruff Swan, in our last 30 or 40 seconds here, there is a report about the administration's new COVID data reporting system, which now bypasses the CDC. It's apparently plagued by delays and inaccuracies. Dr. Fauci is testifying on Capitol Hill today. Certainly he'll be asked about this. Um, What do you make of this data that's really not public or reliable anymore? It's a huge problem for the administration that there is that there's an open question as to whether or not the government is collecting reliable and correct facts about this crisis. And it's something that I think has the potential to to make for an uncomfortable and challenging moment for Dr. Fauci that we'll be keeping a close eye on. Julie Pace, uh, Betsy Woodruff-Swan, and Hayes Brown, stick with me. We're talking about the week in the news and much more ahead. Up next, Attorney General Bill Barr's testimony before Congress, big tech and antitrust, and important policy decisions from the Trump administration this week. I'm Jane Clayson. and this is On Point. We'll be right back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're discussing the week in the news this hour, and we have a great panel of guests to guide us through the week. Julie Pace from the Associated Press, BuzzFeed's Hayes Brown, and Betsy Woodruff-Swan from Politico. So let's move to Attorney General Bill Barr uh, this week defending the federal response to the protests and unrest around the nation. Um, He said the rule of law must be upheld. Betsy Woodruff Swan, that was um, quite a statement uh, from from the attorney general based on what's happened across the country. What did you hear in his testimony this week? No question that uh, it was it was certainly a notable moment for the attorney general. That said, it's also very much consistent with his law and order approach to the way that he believes policing should work in this country. Barr has softened some of his rhetoric when it comes to how he describes uh, the way that police officers treat people of color. But in general, he's been loath to criticize or even to sort of recognize that systemic racism means that people of color, particularly black people, are more likely to have lethal encounters with police officers, more likely to be killed by police than white people are. Uh, during his testimony, it was it was really a memorable hearing in part because of what of what Barr said, but also in part because it was just so tense and at times hectic. It very very much highlighted the extent to which 
Democrats see the attorney general as acting in bad faith and has an, and as having weaponized the Justice Department as essentially an arm of the Trump campaign. That was the theme of the hearing from Democrats. And it was certainly something that you saw uh, members of the House Judiciary Committee really hammer him on, which resulted in some some tense and, uh, shall we say, slightly shouty moments for that long-awaited hearing. Yes, tense indeed and hectic for sure. Uh, and there were perhaps... There was perhaps more venting than questions and, and perhaps fewer answers. Uh, here is the Attorney General Bill Barr defending the, um, the deployment of federal agents in Portland, Oregon during Tuesday's hearing. Since when is it okay to try to burn down a federal court? If someone went down the street to the Prettyman Court here, that beautiful courthouse we have right at the bottom of the hill, and started breaking windows and firing industrial-grade fireworks in to start a fire, throw kerosene balloons in and, and start fires in the court, is that okay? Is that okay now? No, the U.S. Marshals have a duty to stop that and defend the courthouse, and that's what we are doing in Portland. So, Hayes Brown, he makes some good points. Uh, what is happening now in Portland with regard to the status of federal troops and uh, in other cities around the country? So right now, it's, uh, again, a mixed bag. So uh, acting uh, Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf and Portland uh, Governor Kate Brown did come to an agreement this week where they said that these federal officials from uh, DHS, from U.S. Marshals, et cetera, will be withdrawing from Portland. But if you look at the statement from DHS and then listen to what the president has said later, uh, they're... The goal is for these federal forces to draw down as Oregon State Police and local police uh, take over again. So on the streets in Portland, it's a much calmer affair again now that people are realizing that these uh, forces are going to be leaving. But, I mean, the Attorney General, loathe I am to say it uh, in a way, there are people who are trying to do... uh, um, I don't want to say violence because it's a weird thing to say about property, but they are trying to uh, attack this uh, federal courthouse in Portland. On the flip side, though, people out there are protesting for human rights. They're protesting for an end to police brutality. So it's not surprising that for this entire time, they've been escalating uh, their defense uh, against uh, the the federal officials who have been firing round after round of tear gas, pepper bullets, etc., into these crowds of mostly peaceful protesters. And some people uh, who feel more strongly towards the attorney general side that the law and order must be upheld, that the courthouse must be protected, they ha- they focus in on the mostly part as opposed to, and say, well, what about these few people who are uh, trying to burn down the courthouse, et cetera? Whereas most people are looking at the vast crowds, people who are just demanding uh, equal protection under the law for all people in America, and the, that being the reason that they're out there uh, and saying, well, why do we need these forces? So to, to sum up, Portland, they're leaving, but Operation Legend, as the uh, as they're calling it, is also deploying into other cities as well now. Uh, they're going to Detroit, Milwaukee, Albuquerque, where the Department of Justice says that this is going to be less like Portland in terms of active defense, but more helping out law enforcement with violent crime. So how that pans out Uh, We still have to watch and see how that goes, whether it will escalate like it did in Portland or if it is just going to be more of what we would normally think of as federal and local partnerships where the feds are just adding extra manpower to help solve crimes. Hmm. 
Well, let's move on to uh, the chief executives of the four tech giants uh, who testified in Congress this week, uh, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. Um, Julie Pace, what did you hear in their testimonies before the House Antitrust Panel? Well, this was another remarkable hearing that we saw this week on on Capitol Hill. It's been a while since we've seen some of these tech titans appear before lawmakers. And interestingly, this was the first time that Jeff Bezos from Amazon has appeared under oath before Congress at all, which is pretty remarkable given the scale of Amazon's business and, and influence in this country. You know, much of this hearing focused on antitrust issues. And we heard a lot from lawmakers really trying to question you know, whether these companies are uh, too large, whether they are uh, engaged in anti-competitive practices, trying to buy out their competitors and, or steal technology from some of their competitors. We did also hear some discussion from some of the Republicans on the committee about conservative bias in social media, which has been a lot of the discussion that we've heard from President Trump uh, as he really uh, it gets quite agitated about some of the, the warnings that are being put on some of his messages on both Facebook and, and on Twitter, but, but largely focused on antitrust and actually considering how uh, how lawmakers have handled some of these hearings before. There, this one, it, at times, was more substantive than, than we often do here. Mm. Well, uh, lawmakers drilled down on key moments uh, when these companies gained power or allegedly squeezed consumers or competitors or small businesses. Here's one example. Uh, Judici- Judiciary Committee Chair Jerry Nadler pressed Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg on the company's acquisition of the mobile app Instagram. Representative Nadler quoted the CEO's emails that stated the need to, quote, neutralize a competitor. And here's some of that exchange. Now, Mr. Zuckerberg, what did you mean when you described Instagram as a threat, as disruptive? And when you said that Instagram could uh, meaningfully hurt Facebook, did you mean that, Insta- that consumer did you mean that consumers might switch from Facebook to Instagram? Congressman, thanks for the, the opportunity to address this. At the time, there was a, a small but growing field. Of, did you of mean mobile. that? Did you mean that consumers might switch from Facebook to Instagram? That was my question. Thanks, Con- Congressman. Y- yes um, or no? Did you mean can, that? In the space of mobile photos and and, and camera apps, uh, which was growing, uh, they were a competitor. I've been I've been okay, clear about fine, that. And, fine. fine. Betsy Woodworth-Swan, not since Microsoft stood trial in the 1990s for antitrust charges have tech chiefs been under such a microscope uh, for the power of their businesses. And so many issues at stake here, right, from privacy to labor issues to election interference. And that was quite an exchange between Mr. Nadler and Mark Zuckerberg. What stood out to you? These companies, the four companies represented in that room, have nearly a $5 trillion market cap among the four of them, and they touch every facet of American life. I would guess that everyone listening to this radio program right now interacts with products from one of those four companies every day, virtually everybody. It's an extraordinary concentration of power. What's interesting, though, is that even though these four companies were on a panel together and sort of visually at least presented as representing sort of the monolith of Silicon Valley, there's actually not insignificant tension between the four folks who you saw there. One comment from Bezos that I thought was notable was that he criticized uh, social media, which seems to be a you know thinly veiled jab at Mark Zuckerberg. He called it a nuanced destruction machine. That's a quote. And indicated that he thinks social media 
presents some serious challenges to democracy. Of course, that's easy to say when you're not running a social media company. Um, but that sort of that friction there was notable. Another challenge for congressional investigators as they've been scrutinizing the growth and the power of these tech giants is that the materials they've had access to are only materials from prior investigations that have been closed, at least to my knowledge, unless they're getting something that I don't know about, which is possible. But specifically, if you look at the acquisition of Instagram, which was a key moment, which you guys highlighted in that audio, that acquisition was completed back in 2012, and the Federal Trade Commission signed off on it. The Federal Trade Commission also was aware of the materials that now the public is only just becoming aware of eight years later, thanks to this antitrust investigation. So one of the big questions going forward now is, okay, thanks to these investigators, we know a lot about how these companies moved through the past decade, but what trade practices are they currently engaged in that have the ability to shape, to potentially shape uh, the way that the American economy works, the way American people communicate with each Mm -hmm. other? Some ongoing issues to watch uh, for sure and certainly more to come. Uh, Let's talk about for a moment President Trump, uh, who yesterday floated the prospect of delaying the November presidential election. In a tweet, the president said that mail-in voting will make this election the, quote, most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. And he suggested a delay until people can, quote, properly, securely and safely vote. Julie Pace, a U.S. president does not have the power to regulate or change an election, right? Only Congress does. Um, And I'm curious your reaction to this extraordinary suggestion by a U.S. president. Sure. I would say two major things about this. One, you're absolutely right. The president cannot change the date of the election on his own. And we saw a significant pushback from lawmakers in both parties after the president floated this idea, making clear that there will be no congressional action to change the date of elections. And I think that is very important. But the second point I would make is that what the president is doing here by suggesting a delay, by raising questions about how quickly the results could be uh, could be uh, counted and a winner could be declared, and by raising a lot of concerns about the validity of, of Mellon voting, is he is trying to sow doubts about the democratic process. And really think about that for a moment. This is an American president sowing doubts about our democracy. It's extraordinary and it's very dangerous. And I think there is a real risk here that the consequence of it will be that there will be many Americans who simply won't believe the results uh, when they when the votes are calculated. Right. And and if you think about the long term implications of that, it is it is quite dangerous. So the the president's initial tweet came in the morning. And then later in the afternoon, he started in again from the podium of the White House saying the election is going to be rigged, that the results will end up in court. Hayes Brown, it was it was remarkable to hear a sitting president deliberately undermining the potential results of an election before any votes are cast or counted. Your thoughts, Hayes? Uh, my thoughts are that he has been doing this since 2016 when it looked like he was potentially going to lose to Hillary Clinton. Now that he's down in the polls against Joe Biden, he's pulling out the same bag of tricks. But it is more dangerous because he does have the weight of the White House behind him. And one of the things that is important to note is that 
a lot of commenters yesterday said, well, the president can't do this alone. And that's true. He can't change the date of the election without Congress, but he can do a lot of things to undermine the validity of the vote. Uh, I saw a scenario put forward where potentially a set of ballots are not properly uh, counted in, say, Florida. And uh, they, the because the the uh, Secretary of State there, just as a hypothetical, says, well, these ballots we should not count because X, Y, Z, they did not show up in time to be uh, counted d- during this election. They, it goes to court and the president is pushing back forcefully uh, in the course. We've seen time and time again of his delay, delay, delay legal strategy, where as long as he is able to keep things from moving forward, he wins. So it's not a stretch to see that extending to the very this election itself. And the president is trying to have it both ways because he's trying to say that mail-in voting is a risk, but absentee voting, which is the exact same thing, is somehow safe. It's just all very confusing to, I'm sure, people who are just listening casually and uh, are just being primed to think, well, if we don't hear the election results on the night of the election, then something is wrong, something is screwy. They are trying to steal this election from the president. So Betsy Woodruff Swan, for all the president's repeated talk about mail-in voting and Nanta Hayes' point, I mean, there are many states and a lot of red states, incidentally, that have been voting by mail successfully for many years, Betsy. Oh, years and years and decades and decades. Voting by mail is not a brand new innovation by any stretch of the imagination. One of the many head-scratching things about the president's new comments regarding voting by mail is that both the president and Attorney General Bill Barr have obviously raised concerns about this widespread and long-used practice. What's ironic, though, is that the Justice Department hasn't actually taken the one legal step that they could take if they really wanted to try to gum up the gears nationally from DOJ headquarters when it comes to mail-in voting. What they could do and what they notably have not done is they could sue state governments to audit their voter rolls. They could allege that these mail-in ballots are, you know, they could make the allegations that the president and Bill Barr have made outside of court, you know, that there are all sorts of issues with fraud, et cetera, et cetera. And they could let it be litigated. They could let it go through the federal courts and let federal judges assess whether or not these problems actually exist in the real world. But they haven't done that, which suggests that I think from a legal standpoint, the Trump administration may feel it doesn't actually have the goods to back up the allegations that the president is making. Well, we have about a minute left here, and I want to get to this story. Uh, President Trump this week rescinded an Obama-era fair housing rule that was meant to combat uh, housing discrimination. Uh, President Trump tweeted that suburbanites would, quote, no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood, end quote. Julie Pace, um, critics called this racist uh, and an active campaign for housing segregation. Um, How did you see it, Julie? Well, I would agree. I mean, I think there is some 
fairly coded racist rhetoric in what the president is talking about here. I mean, and it's important to put this in context of the election. You know, he is really trying to close the margins in the suburbs. This is an area where Republicans need to do well historically in order to win and where he's been losing ground, particularly among suburban women. And he is trying to play to sort of an old model of the suburbs, the idea of people in the suburbs being fearful of of the cities and of minorities. I do think the suburbs have changed, and that is something that the president uh, may not fully recognize right now. Julie Pace, Washington Bureau Chief with the Associated Press, Betsy Woodruff-Swan, Politico National Correspondent, and Hayes Brown, co-host and producer of the BuzzFeed and iHeart podcast News O'Clock. When we come back, a look at the state of the 2020 race for the White House, plus remembering civil rights icon John Lewis in his own words. More to come. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. Next week, we'll be talking with educators about schools reopening. Teachers, what is your district's plan for the new school year? How have you prepared and what tough decisions are you having to make? Tell us your story. We'd love to hear it at 617-353-0683. Well, we continue now today with our weekly news roundtable. Our panel this hour, Julie Pace with the Associated Press, Politico's Betsy Woodruff-Swan and Hayes Brown with BuzzFeed. Well, the Pentagon this week announced a plan to redistribute U.S. troops across Europe to better prepare for threats from Russia and China. Uh, President Trump offered a different rationale for this change. Here he is uh, before taking off uh, in Marine One. They're there to protect Europe. They're there to protect Germany, right? And Germany is supposed to pay for it. Germany is not paying for it. So why should we leave them if we don't want to be the suckers anymore? The United States has been taking advantage of for 25 years, both on trade and on the military. We're protecting Germany. 
So we're reducing the force because they're not paying their bills. It's very simple. They're delinquent. They're delinquent. So 12,000 U.S. troops out of Germany. Uh, The announcement triggered an onslaught of disapproval from Republicans and Democrats across the board, former military leaders, senior military officials who said the move would benefit one country, and that is Russia. Uh, Julie Pace, what's the rationale here? What did you make of this? Well, officially, the president's rationale is, as he says, it's it's financial. He believes that Germany should be paying more to support an American troop presence there. But there is this broader geopolitical backdrop that you can't ignore, which is the fact that, as you say, this is something that it works in Russia's favor. Russia wants to see fewer American troops in Europe. They believe that those American troops uh, are essentially a deterrent for some of their aggressions. And it's not so long ago that we remember what Russia did did in Crimea, annexing what was territory from from Ukraine. And so there's a lot of concern that the president uh, is bowing to some pressure from Russia. And if he's not even doing so uh, because of an explicit ask from President Putin, it's just another example of where his policies do seem to benefit Russia and are counter to what uh, bipartisan lawmakers and bipartisan national security officials in the United States support. Well, from uh, troops leaving Germany to U.S. intelligence reports that Russia offered bounties to the Taliban to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Jonathan Swan interviewed President Trump this week for an upcoming episode of Axios on HBO. President Trump said he never brought up the issue of putting bounties on U.S. troops in Afghanistan. He never brought it up in recent phone calls with Russian President Vladimir Putin. A lot of people said it's a fake issue. There was well, we had a call. We had a call talking about nuclear proliferation, which right. is a very big subject, where they would like to do something, and so would I. We discussed numerous things. We did not discuss that. No. And you've never discussed it with him. I have never discussed it with him. No. I we would. I'd have no problem with it. But you don't. Believe but you know, the it never. It's because you don't believe the intelligence. That's why. Uh, everything. You know, it's interesting. Nobody ever brings up China. They always bring Russia, Russia, Russia. If we can do something with Russia in terms of nuclear proliferation, which is a very big problem, bigger problem than global warming, a much bigger problem than global warming in terms of the real world, uh, that would be a great thing. No, uh, it never reached my desk. You know why? Because they didn't think it was intelligence. They didn't think it was real. It was they in your written think, brief, though. They didn't think it was worthy. of. Re- I wouldn't mind. If it reached my desk, I would have done something about it. Betsy Woodruff-Swan, I'll turn to you on this because the interviewer there happens to be your husband. Um, Intelligence analysts have said that the bounties uh, that Russia put on U.S. soldiers resulted in the deaths of three Marines in April 2019. The president has been dismissive of these these, uh, reports, ongoing reports. Uh, Your take here, Betsy. That's right. And I thought he did a great job. It was a very talented interviewer, I have to say. (laughs) Um, I'm a little biased. Um, Look, there's not total consensus within the intelligence community about this particular topic, which it must be noted, isn't unusual. What we do know is that this intelligence caused enough concerns within the intelligence community that it actually did make it to the president's desk in his written presidential daily briefing. But despite that, the president clearly is saying he doesn't take it particularly seriously. Another piece of this, though, that 
is vital when we talk about how the Kremlin is interfering or, or playing a role in supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan, is that while there's not perfect 100% consensus in the intelligence community on this specific narrow topic of bounties, there is consensus that the Kremlin has given money and arms to the Taliban to support them in their fight against the United States. That's another piece of this that came up in the interview, and the president didn't really Really have a good explanation of why he hasn't addressed that with uh, with Vladimir Putin, even though clearly, when you're funding an organization that's that is at war with the U.S. that is trying to kill American troops, as the Kremlin has been doing for the Taliban for years now, you are participating and you are supporting uh, the the side that is engaged in efforts designed to kill American soldiers. The fact that the president doesn't have a a coherent way of explaining why he hasn't even talked about that with Putin is perhaps not surprising given his history on the the Russia relationship, but still a a very important new revelation. Right. And based on uh, Trump's comments in that interview, the Washington Post called it a four Pinocchio uh, interview, many of those comments which uh, Jonathan Swan did point out. Let me move to uh, presidential politics uh, for a moment here. Presumptive Democratic nominee and former Vice President Joe Biden gave a speech Tuesday laying out his plan to fight systemic racism. Here's what he says about President Trump. Donald Trump faces a real test and he's failed it. The basic threshold of being president, the duty to care for the entire country, not just his reelection prospects. He's shown that he can't beat the pandemic and keep you safe. He can't turn the economy around and get America back to work. And he is horrifyingly and not surprisingly intentionally stoking the flames of division and racism in this country. Hayes Brown, I'll turn to you on this. Um, What did you hear in uh, the former vice president this week who is in the final stretch of his search for a running mate? So what I heard from him was someone who accurately characterizes the president and his views on race relations. So for all the president's um, rhetoric about how he's been great for the black community, how up until the crisis hit uh, that he's been better for black unemployment than any other president history, which is false, uh, it's all been pushed aside uh, in recent uh, months as the president has really leaned into his base, which is white, extremely overwhelmingly white. Uh, So Biden, his speech uh, was laying out how the uh, investments that he wanted to make in the country, the billions and billions of dollars of stimulus funding that he was hoping to pass once he got into office would affect and uplift uh, people of color in the United States of America. That would include about $30 billion to... uh, Push and up, push up and bolster small businesses owned by uh, black and brown people. Uh, he said that he wants to advance a refundable tax credit worth about fifteen thousand dollars to be that could be used for people to buy their first homes uh, and a slew of other uh, proposals that he's made before, but specifically highlighting how it would help people of color in this country, uh, which is a much more you know solid and. Um, much more solid and focused plan than the president has put forward in his time in office. Uh, And as far as he still said, the vice president, uh, sorry, the former vice president is still, still yet to announce his running mate. Uh, He's expected to do so very shortly. And uh, it's, we're going to be watching to see whether or not uh, a black woman is the pick. 
Well, Julie Pace, as um, Biden took questions from reporters this week, he held up notes that were captured in photograph by one of your colleagues at the Associated Press, an Associated Press photographer. Senator, Senator Kamala Harris's name was scrawled across the top. Everyone, uh, you know, looking for clues. Julie Pace, uh, what do you see coming? Absolutely. That was a terrific photo from AP photographer Andrew Harnick. And, and I think it, it showed that, one, uh, Kamala Harris is on Joe Biden's mind. He's also, uh, he, the notes showed he was trying to rebut some uh, coverage about Harris, you know, some coverage that some people in Biden's orbit uh, think she may be too ambitious, uh, which is always a difficult thing to say, a tricky thing to say about a, a female politician, uh, that she would potentially be eyeing the presidency herself if she was down the hall as, as vice president. And Biden was trying to make clear that that he does not see that as a as a weakness for her. Uh, but certainly, it is something that has been discussed among Democrats as as Biden uh, closes in on his pick. Harris is seen as someone who could potentially be a president for the party going forward. She obviously ran for the office herself, and I do think that one of the considerations for Biden is is what kind of partner does he want? Does he want a partner who is essentially seen as the heir apparent uh, in the Democratic Party, the future leader of the Democratic Party? Is he looking for somebody who will really burrow in on governing, who could maybe spend four years just focused on national security or the economy, domestic policy? Uh, There's a big uh, workload that he and his vice president would have ahead of them if, if Democrats are to take back the Oval Office, given the situation that the country is in right now. Well, uh, thank you. Let me move for a moment here to the Supreme Court, because Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was hospitalized this week after under- undergoing a minimally invasive non-surgical procedure on a bile duct stent she received uh, last year. Um, Justice Ginsburg is 89. Uh, she has been seriously ill. It was interesting that recently John Thune of of South Dakota, the second ranking Republican leader, said that the Senate would fill any potential Supreme Court vacancy, even during a lame duck session after the presidential election, which is certainly a break from what happened in 2016 when then President Obama nominated Judge Merrick Garland to the court, which you covered. Julie, I'll stick with you on this. Um, Your thoughts on, on, on that statement and these developments? Well, look, a Supreme Court vacancy at this point in the calendar uh, would be extremely controversial given what happened in 2016. Uh, Mitch McConnell argues that we are in a different situation now. And and what he argues there is that in 2016, you had a Democratic president, but you had a Republican Senate. Now we have a Republican president and a Republican Senate. Uh, And so he uses that to make the case for why you could move forward with a vacancy, filling a vacancy this close to uh, the election. I do think if you are in a situation where we are talking about a vacancy after the election and Joe Biden has won the election... I think that that really does flip that scenario on its head. And I think that there would be a lot of pressure on some of those more moderate Republicans, you know, the Mitt Romneys, the Susan Collinses, the retiring Lamar Alexanders to say, let's be fair, you know, to the incoming president here. But I would not venture to guess where we would end up in that situation. It is it is one of the most uh, sensitive and and tricky, I think, uh, elements of our democracy right now is these vacancies on the Supreme Court, you know, close to an election. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, we'll continue to watch. I'd like to end today um, remembering uh, the late Congressman John Lewis, whom America laid to rest uh, yesterday. The great civil rights icon returned to Atlanta, to the Ebenezer Baptist Church, the place where he worshipped with his mentor, Dr. Martin Luther King. It was a very moving memorial service. Betsy Woodruff Swan, what struck you about the memorial service and the events of this week? I think uh, it's it was just it was a deeply beautiful service and President Obama's tribute to John Lewis and the the leadership that he provided, the inspiration that Lewis provided, uh, I think was was deeply moving for everyone who watched. Uh, George W. Bush also gave a uh, a notable eulogy highlighting the way that John Lewis was able, you know, both to fight for what he believed in and to and to you know engage in hard nonviolent work against uh, against political forces that were you know incredibly incredibly damaging, but also was able to bring people together. The fact that President Trump was not present at the memorial service of of this of this man who's a civil rights hero and an American icon points, I think, to the extent that the current leadership in this country has uh, has deeply struggled or even perhaps given up struggling on uniting Americans around issues that just shouldn't be controversial at all. And if people haven't read it yet, everyone should read the uh, New York Times op-ed that they published by John Lewis that he asked to be published the day of his memorial service. It's just a beautiful and a moving read. It is. It is remarkable. Um, three former U.S. presidents, as you said, um, spoke. Bush, Clinton, Obama. President Obama uh, gave the eulogy to Lewis. He laid out specific policies in it um, to increase voter participation in elections and criticize those trying to suppress the vote. But even as we sit here, there are those in power who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws and attacking our voting rights with surgical precision, even undermining the postal service in the run-up to an election that's going to be dependent on mail-in ballots so people don't get sick. Hayes Brown, President Obama called for the end of the filibuster in that speech, saying it was a Jim Crow relic. He talked about making Election Day a holiday. Some serious policy proposals uh, in an eulogy to a remarkable man. About 30 seconds to the end here, Hayes. Yeah, and uh, I feel like it was extremely appropriate. John Lewis was fighting for these ideals for his entire life, his entire time in Congress. One of his last pushes in Congress was to get the Voter Voting Rights Act renewed and updated after the Supreme Court gutted some of its provisions. And so for President Obama to stand there and say forcefully that we need to get this work done, that was exactly the right time. He wrote in the essay that the New York Times uh, published the day of his death, though I may not be here with you, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you believe. In my life, I have done all I can to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence is the more excellent way. Remembering uh, the great John Lewis. Thank you all very much uh, today. A great panel. Uh, you illuminated us on many things, and I appreciate your great reporting. Julie Pace, Washington Bureau Chief of the Associated Press. Julie, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Betsy Woodruff-Swan from Politico. Betsy, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And Hayes Brown, co-host and producer of BuzzFeed and iHeart Podcast News O'Clock. Thanks, Hayes. Always a pleasure. Here's Wintley Phipps singing Amazing Grace for John Lewis. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. <laughs> 